So uh, let me ask you this question. What's it like for you bringing up the gospel with friends, with work colleagues, or with family? How does it feel for you to invite someone to an event or to read the Bible with you or to a Christianity Explored group? Do you find it easy? Do you find it hard? I mean, Karen's just saying, well, that's actually, you know, I kind of do it, but it's, it's a bit of a battle. It's, 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 it's hard. And I think, I think it's true to say that the average Christian in the UK, particularly in London, feels pretty intimidated. Feels pretty intimidated. It is easy to feel um, outgunned and outnumbered in our society, isn't it? We feel a little bit strange, a little bit of a minority. I mean, think about it now. What is the rest of London doing this weekend? And what would they think of what you're doing this weekend? You've gone away to this place and this, this bald bloke is talking to you from the Bible. I mean, you're young people, you know, shouldn't you be a, you know, going out having a good time? What are you doing? What percentage of the local community in Earlsfield is in a church on a Sunday? It's very, very small, isn't it? Let's not kid ourselves. The UK is very, very far from God. It, it, God is essentially irrelevant in, in any kind of public uh, discussion or debate. It is becoming increasingly anti-God. Uh, imagine you had a problem sometime next week uh, at work, some kind of dispute, or, or as a mum at home, if you're having some kind of problem with your neighbours, and, 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 you, and you said to people around you, hey, what, why don't we pray about this? I mean, they'd just think you're off your rocker, wouldn't they? They'd just think you're, uh, you're on another planet. When you see the ads all around you, when you look at the TV, what is being preached to you? What is life really about? It is about romance, about sex, about cars, about white teeth, and getting your bowels to work with some kind of weird yogurt stuff. <laughs> it, is, it is everything other than God, isn't it? Everything other than God is the centre of life, the meaning of life. In schools, all religions are essentially the same, and all religion is, is to be excluded from teaching. So there's not, not to be any kind of value system that's to inform teaching, which of course is a value system. Um, the UK has probably never, has never been as uninterested in God as it is now. Now I'm not trying to glorify the past in any way, but, but we live in a very secular, very anti-God society and we kind of feel it. Um, a Facebook friend of my wife uh, recently put up a post about uh, the problem of her child going to a church school. And she was kind of quite, she kind of offended, stroke, irritated that basically in the school, the kid had been taught, God loves you. Now notice that. She was kind of offended or irritated that someone said to her child that God loves you. And there were kind of loads of kind of comments on this post. It, no one had said, you know, your child is a sinner who needs salvation or God is a judge. So God loves you. God loves you is actually becoming offensive. Just that very truth, which we would think, surely everyone would love this. But increasingly, people have been irritated and offended by even that. This is what it's come to. Now, given all of this, talking about the mission of the church seems very much like Mission Impossible, doesn't it? It can feel like Mission Impossible. We're a minority. Our society is increasingly hostile to the gospel. It can seem increasingly intellectually foolish. It's not part of public discussion. We can feel ill-equipped, Ill you know, I haven't gone to every theological college like Karen and, and uh, had all this training. And so, you know, what am I going to say to people? And, and, and to be honest, we're scared of kind of being rejected and losing relationships and, and being a bit of a kind of social pariah. 
And talking openly about Christ is a, can feel a bit like a kind of kamikaze dive into Billy No Mate's land. It, feels, it can feel like we're calling social disaster simply by being a Christian. And so therefore, reaching London can seem a bit like a distant dream. But that's not really our biggest problem. It's even worse. What do you say? The introduction to this talk has been depressing enough as it is. How much worse can it get? But in reality, secularism isn't our biggest problem. Uh, we might think our culture is particularly hardened, but actually, remember what the Bible says. The Bible says that our real problem is not simply our culture, it is the human heart. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 tells us that our problem is not simply our culture, but that we are dead in our sins. It's not just that we're people sceptical, but they're spiritually dead. We're not just post-Christian, we're post-fall of man, we're post-Garden of Eden. We're people not just disinterested, they're spiritually blind and cannot see without the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. Now that is a much bigger problem than secularism. We're talking about a fight against sin, the world, and the devil. Now, there is actually a strange encouragement in this. Because, you see, if we think that the battle that we have is with secularism and with our culture, essentially it all falls back on us. We've got to be really smart and read a thousand books and be very adept at coming up with good arguments and very skillful in our conversation. We have to try and reprogram our society. And, and actually that's very anxiety-inducing, isn't it? It's very pressurizing. And we would feel very ill-equipped. We can easily feel overwhelmed. But if, if the problem on the deepest level is really sin, the world, and the devil, there is a solution to that and it doesn't come back to us, there's actually a very great encouragement for us today. And it is simply this, the work of the Holy Spirit. If the problem is of sin, the world, and the devil, you actually have a solution, which is the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is our great resource in the face of society's hard-heartedness. He is the one who makes all the difference. Now, I want you to join with me in a thought experiment. Imagine Andy, next Sunday, just says, look, I really feel God has laid on my heart that we need to do door-to-door evangelism in Earlsfield. And so what we're going to do, we're going to cancel our Sunday service this week, and we're going to go out two by two through the streets of Earlsfield. We're going to knock on the doors, and we're going to tell people about Jesus. Now, how would you, how would you feel about that? Now, maybe one or two of you go, yeah, great, let's do it. But probably a, a lot of you would feel pretty uncomfortable doing that. But imagine this. Imagine you got partnered up with Jesus. Imagine it was you and Jesus going door-to-door. How would you feel? You'd feel a little bit different, wouldn't you? You might, you might feel a bit scared, a bit anxious, but you can't think, well, he could do a miracle, so, you know, and he's, he's son of God, so he'll sort it, and I can just kind of, I can kind of go along for the ride. You'd feel greater confidence, wouldn't you? Turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 26 to 27. We'll be mainly looking at the book of Acts, so keep your finger in the book of Acts. Um, but, but first of all, we're just going to look at John chapter 14, verses 26 to 27. <coughs> but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus is about to go to his death, and he's saying to his disciples, Look, I am going away, but I am sending the Helper, the Holy Spirit. See, often we feel alone. 
But actually, Jesus is telling his disciples there, and he's telling us, you are not alone. I am here. The second Jesus has come, the Holy Spirit. He is the second Jesus who's come to be with us forever. And he teaches us all things and brings to remembrance all that Jesus has, has given us. And he gives us the peace of Jesus Christ. The second Jesus is with us. The reality is, you do go out with Jesus. It's not just a thought experiment. He is with you individually and as a church. And I want us to look at three um, things the Spirit does, three encouragements we get from the book of Acts. And we need to be encouraged, don't we? Because we'll struggle with this. And we need to keep coming back to these truths. Uh, and I would encourage you in the weeks to come, you know, take this handout with you and just kind of go back over it and remind yourself of these things. We'll look at how the work, the work of the Spirit in the book of Acts makes mission possible, how he makes mission powerful, and how he makes mission joyful. These three things. Let's go firstly then to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now here Jesus repeats the promise from John 14 and from Luke 24 that we, uh, we read earlier. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Here Jesus is, co- is commissioning his people to be witnesses, but notice the condition of the mission, the first part of the verse. Do you see that? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The condition of the mission is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Mission is based upon the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the risen Christ here is giving great promises to his people. Great promises. Notice, though, that there is an empowering before the sending. He empowers before he sends out. Now, we know what comes next. I mean, after chapter 1, you get chapter 2. And you have the day of Pentecost, and your tongues of fire, and there's a great uh, sound like, like wind, and, and disciples are empowered. And bam, they start preaching all over the place. And so Acts, the book of Acts, becomes like a series of concentric circles um, that, are, that are like a kind of explosion that kind of ri- has ripple effects. And they go from Judea, Samaria, and, and to the very ends of the earth. The word of the gospel goes out from Jerusalem, and it moves outwards. And it was all done by the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit is the condition of the mission. Now notice something very obvious and very striking here about how important the Holy Spirit is. See, what's the situation here? The apostles are gathered with the risen Jesus Christ. They're talking to him. We we read that he's been talking to them for 40 days. They've been eating with him. But Jesus doesn't think that that is enough. Isn't that very striking? I mean, you would have thought, you know, you've... You've been with the risen Jesus, right? He's, ri- he's risen from the dead, we've seen it, right, right, we're out. You know, let's go, Judea, Samaria, the, the, the uh, ends of the earth. But the fact that Jesus died and risen is not enough for the mission to start. Isn't that very striking? You would think, wouldn't you, that Jesus is risen, we've seen him, it's amazing, we know all about his life, we know about his miracles, his death, we've got, we've got it. You know, we don't need to read John's gospel, we've been there, we've seen it happen, we just kind of go out and tell people about it. But Jesus says that's not enough, you've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that raises an interesting question for us, a very important question for us. What are we depending upon in mission? As we think about doing evangelism, what are we relying upon? See, it's not enough just to have two ways to live under your belt, or to know stuff, or to have read books on apologetics, or to have gone to every theological college, or to have big plans, or to have a really cool set of events planned. It isn't enough to have an amazing speaker. It's not even enough, actually, if you understand me rightly here, to have just the word of God. 
The apostles had the word of God right in front of them, didn't they? But they needed the Spirit. They needed the Spirit, and they kept on needing the Spirit. They weren't doing mission on their own, with their own resources, with their own cleverness, with their own insights. No matter how well motivated they were, they needed the Spirit. Now imagine your, uh, your uh, car today that you, you came here in, and uh, you, you're wanting to, to go somewhere next week, and you've, uh, you've planned your route, you've got your driving license, you've read the map, but there's no fuel in the car. You can get in behind the steering wheel and kind of say, brum, brum, and, uh, and, and, and know where you're going. But you're not going anywhere, are you, without any fuel in your car? Though you have everything else, you have, you, there is something essential which you need, which is the spirit. The spirit is the very basis of doing any kind of a mission, any kind of evangelism. Now, don't, miss, don't mishear me. I'm not in any way dismissing books or training. I'm not advocating getting some kind of mystical experience. And I'm, certain, I'm not talking about being baptized in the Holy Spirit or getting a second blessing. What I'm talking about here is dependence, about reliance, about humility, about a deep recognition that, the, that mission is supernatural. And it can only be done supernaturally. What this causes us to do is to humble ourselves and recognize there's loads that's not in our power. There's lots that we can't control. It reminds us we need to pray and we need to ask God to fill us again and again with his spirit. See, the real danger for us, particularly those of us who are kind of more activists by nature, is we, we get going with mission. We have an over-preoccupation with gifts, with ability, with training, with speakers, with plans, how we're going to do the events, with We've been very clever about how we, how we reach people and how we sell things. And of course, we must do all these things. But what we really need, who we really need, is the Spirit. And we never get, really, we never get beyond this. We never, you know, there never comes a time when we can say, oh, well, do you know what, I've, I've, I've done enough evangelism now. I've done door-to-door, I've done the courses, I've read enough books, I know how to do this. And, you know, we never get beyond this. The Spirit is the one great resource we have through Jesus. And he makes Mission Impossible possible. And as you, go through the, as you go through the book of Acts, actually you see that deep connection between the coming of the Spirit and the preaching of the Gospel. So Acts 1 verse 8 makes that very clear, doesn't it? It makes it very um, uh, obvious for us. Now what happens in Acts 2 when the Spirit comes? Well, the, 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 the disciples start speaking in tongues, don't they? Proclaiming the Gospel to the nations. The apostles' reaction is not, uh, when they receive the, you know, the gift of tongues. Wow, what a cool gift. You know, I can go on holiday to Egypt now. I speak Arabic. Or I can get a job as a translator. No, they preach the gospel, don't they? In other words, the coming of the Spirit is not to give them a private experience, but to facilitate world mission. The Spirit comes to enable the preaching of the gospel in impossible situations. And you might feel that your situation is impossible. And that is exactly why the Spirit comes. Because your situation is impossible. We can't raise the dead, can we? We can't bring spiritual life. We have to have the Spirit. Be encouraged that the Spirit can give you words. And if he can give someone another language, he can certainly facilitate our communication in English. Let's look at the Spirit's work through Acts. Turn with me to um, Acts chapter 8. Here we see the Spirit directing the the, um, gospel ministry in Africa. Acts 8 verse 29.
And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. He, he, and so, spirit, uh, so Philip goes over and shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. And then when he's done, verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit, spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Second example is from the gospel going to the Gentiles the first time, chapter 10, verse 19. And while, the, and while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. So the Spirit is directing Peter as he brings the gospel for the first time to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And then the third example, we see the Spirit directing the missionary work of Paul. So chapter 13, verse 2. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. He's, he, sends, he directs and sends out Paul and Barnabas on the first um, missionary work uh, around the Mediterranean. And in chapter 16, verse 7. Again, Paul and his missionary team. When they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, those are just a few examples, but what impression do you get of the Spirit's work here? Basically, what you see is the Spirit is directing the ministry. He's absolutely sovereign. He's saying, look, go over there, do this, do that, um, come here. The point is, he's sovereignly directing the ministry of the gospel at every point. He is the one big evangelist. He is the missions strategist. Who is the mission strategist of Christ Church, Earlsfield? It's the Holy Spirit. That is really encouraging. It's really encouraging. And let's draw a simple, logical inference from this. If the Spirit can orchestrate world mission, he can orchestrate and lead your world mission. He can lead your mission. He can, he can show you where to go. Now, my experience of planting uh, the, the church at St. John's and leading that ministry has been the Holy Spirit has been at work. Often he's not done what I wanted, wanted him to do. And um, uh, I've had some, some actually uh, utterly brilliant ideas that have not worked. Um, and, and yet... Somehow he produces growth, and sometimes I can't really quite explain it. You know, just kind of things happen. And so uh, um, my strategy now is kind of the providence of God, the work of spirit of the Spirit, and sovereignly directing the ministry. And actually, you know, at times I thought, oh, if I do it like this, this will result. If I, if I say things in this particular way, I preach in this particular way, this will happen. And actually, it doesn't. And in some, some other bizarre, strange way, someone suddenly becomes a Christian or grows or something happens. The Holy Spirit is directing the ministry. He, he makes mission possible, and that is a great encouragement for us. So that's the first thing then, mission made possible. Secondly, mission made powerful. Mission made powerful. How we need spiritual power. I mean, I, I feel that intensely. I'm sure you feel that intensely. Um, all you have to do is be in ministry for a while, and you realize that your gifts aren't enough. I mean, when you first... Um, plant a church you get into ministry you can kind of in your head you've kind of planted super church <coughs> and you kind of think yeah no i know how to do this and then you do it and you realize oh wait a minute this didn't quite go as, as as i planned and you and you have a lot of failures and sometimes the lord leaves us in our weaknesses and our failure to discipline us he's saying hey andy mason you need my power and, and maybe some of some, we've experienced that as well and actually we've, we've run head on into things and we haven't really Ask the Lord for power. But chapter 1, verse 8, is a promise of power. And the word there in the original is the word dynamis, where we get dynamite from. Dynamite. 
The spirit coming is like a big explosion with ripple effects. But it's not a destructive explosion. It's a creative explosion. It's, he's remaking everything. I mean, you remember the, the spirit hovers over the waters in Genesis chapter 1 as God remakes the world. In the same way, the spirit comes in, in, in Acts. And he's hovering over the world, remaking the world. He's recreating the world through the preaching of the gospel. And so we get this incredible promise of power right from the beginning of the book of Acts. So, uh, for example, with the, the miracle of the, of the um, healing of the lame man, chapter 3, verse 12. Go with me to that, will you? Um, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And in chapter 4, verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Chapter 6, verse 8, we read of Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Chapter 9, verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Increased in power. And then lastly, chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And you have these markers through, through the book, book of Acts, how the word increases and, trans, and, and, and impacts error. This power, 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 the spirit is using um, his apostles to preach the word and everything is being changed. And so we see that power is vital to mission. And, it, and so we need something very powerful if we're going to impact the world. If we're going to face down London and the opposition of uh, sin, the world and the devil, we need power. There's a great promise here. Jesus promises us power. Now, maybe today you don't feel too powerful. And it's very important to see, actually, what life was like for this spirit-filled church. What life was like when they were filled with all this power. It's very surprising to look at these lives that are filled with spiritual power. Go with me to chapter 4, verse 18. So they called the apostles and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 18. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Chapter 5, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Chapter 6, verse 12. We're just reading about Stephen, full of grace and power. And they stirred up the people and the elders of the scribes and they came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And chapter 8, verse, verse 1, after Stephen's execution. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, it's very striking. You see, we've just been talking about this great promise of spirit-filled power, and then look what happens. Well, you know, you can think, wow, there's going to be great miracles. They're going to be safe, aren't they? They're going to be protected. But, of course, what we get is tremendous suffering. It's not quite what we want or what we were hoping for, is it? Not quite what we were expecting with spiritual power. In 1981, there was a guy called Chet Bitterman. He was an American missionary with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And he was in Colombia, and he got kidnapped by a, by a group of terrorists, and he was held for 48 days. 
And he became kind of, it became quite a famous news story, and churches were praying for him. And then he was executed. And his dad wrote about Chet's death later, and he said, the problem was that we, were so com- we, the, 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 we so completely misread God's intent. We fully expected Chet to lead his captors to the Lord. We expected God to release Chet in some miraculous way. We anticipated telling the news reporters when Chet was released, see what God has done. But how is he going to do something now in a way that will make sense to the world? You can see that here the disappointment of the dad. He's just lost his son. He's thinking, what on earth is God doing here? I thought God was powerful. I thought God would do something remarkable. How can God be at work in this? But all the way through the book of Acts, we see this connection between the power of the Spirit and suffering. The Spirit of Christ enables, the power of the Spirit of Christ enables in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he enables the apostles to do what? To become witnesses. That word witness, originally in Greek, is the word for martyr. That word, that being a witness, actually entails suffering. Acts chapter 4, let's have a look at this passage. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. Here the apostles have just been released from prison. And we read that when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they, in, in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now here they are, they're, they're just uh, starting to be persecuted. The apostles have been put in prison and they pray. Now what, what do they pray for? Do they pray for protection? Do they pray for the destruction of their enemies? Do they pray that they might be able to escape? No, they pray for power to keep witnessing to keep on going, to preach the good news in the middle of suffering. The power is given to them to keep going in the middle of suffering. Do you see that connection? The power isn't given just for, so that they can see amazing things happen, but that they might witness in the midst of terrible suffering. The Spirit of Christ enables us to go the way of Christ, and the way of Christ is about taking up our cross. The Spirit will drive me to places that will bring suffering and persecution. Remember that Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. And so I think it's good for us to get used to the idea that if we are going to reach London and our friends for Christ, it will mean sacrifice, suffering, rejection, shame, isolation. It is worth just getting used to that. And so when that happens, not feeling somehow that I'm being singled out in some terrible way for persecution. As I said earlier, the the reality is we live in a very comfortable part of the world, and often our drive is to create even more comfort in our lives. But London cannot be reached without our suffering and sacrifice. And that might look differently for different people in different times, different places. But it won't be reached without those things. And so I think it's good, it's good 
for every church, it's good for you guys to think through what would that mean for us? What would that mean practically for us? If we're going to be effective, we need to pray those kind of acts for prayers. Lord, you know, let, let my friends reject me, but I will witness to you. I don't care if I get sacked from my job. I don't care if I actually don't get promotion. I don't care if people think that I'm, uh, that I'm, not, um, I'm not the... The great guy I thought I was, so I want to be. I want to, I want to serve you. I want to be bold for you. Give me power. Give me power. We'd often like power without suffering. But this prayer in Acts 4 and the book of Acts teaches us that, that power comes in order to sustain us through suffering. So, mission made powerful. Third point. Mission made joyful. Suffering, sacrifice... Isolation, shaming, serious stuff. It's a bit unpleasant, isn't it? It's not much fun. Uh, and uh, perhaps we feel, well, okay, just going to gear myself up for a kind of hard life. To grip my teeth, and then it's glory. But there's more. There's more. The Spirit doesn't just promise us powerful evangelism, but he promises us, uh, he promises us great joy. And that is the remarkable thing when you go through the book of Acts. There is lots and lots of joy. Now, in your head mentally now, list up ten things in your life that make you happy. You, you know, if you want to write that list, what, what, you know, what would be on it? Maybe your cat, Valentine's cards, getting up at five o'clock in the morning, running ridiculous distances, many other things. But how about evangelism? How about suffering for the gospel? That's kind of, it's not kind of necessarily my top ten. Evangelism may seem to you a bit like a kind of duty or a burden or something you kind of, you'd rather be without. Well, know that the Holy Spirit comes to fill you with joy, with incredible supernatural joy. And you may not feel very joyful today. And actually, that's kind of the point, because the joy is supernatural. It's not natural. I mean, you may not necessarily feel particularly joyful, but actually, the Spirit can give you joy that isn't of yourself. That isn't simply, you know, because you happen to be an optimistic uh, kind of person, someone with a sunny disposition. Um, The Spirit can give you supernatural joy. And it's something the world cannot understand or explain. And actually in the scripture, you see that connection between the, between the spirit and joy. So uh, we won't look these up. I'll give you the references. Luke 10, 21. Acts 13, 52. Romans 14, 17. Galatians 5, 22. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. And all these passages, we see how the Spirit produces joy. It's, it's, it's a very significant effect of the Spirit coming in us. Now, against this background, one that's, you know, the, it is striking to see the joy going away, all the way through the book of Acts. And it comes, as, as I've said, in the middle of tremendous suffering. So chapter 5, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name. That's amazing, isn't it? They've been beaten, and they end up leaving the presence, not rejoicing they've been beaten, but they've been counted worthy to, to suffer for the name of Jesus. Chapter 13, verses 49 to 52. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city 
stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook, uh, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They've been rejected, been thrown out of the city, and they go, okay, praise the Lord. Jesus is alive. We've got the Holy Spirit. Then chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And they are praying and singing hymns to God. You see how the apostles responded to their circumstances. They had got an indestructible joy. And this joy is a very, very powerful evangelistic witness. John Piper says this, I think it's on your sheets, isn't it? Glad suffering shines brighter than gratitude. Now what he means by that is that, of course, we are grateful for the good things in our lives. We're, we're grateful for the kind of temporal blessings, you know, a house, a children, a, a job, money in your pocket, clothes, all these things. And we give him thanks for that. But the world is a lot less likely to be convicted by our, grat- our gratitude than our glad suffering. When you suffer with joy for the gospel, the world stands up and takes notice because they say there's something very strange and unusual going on here. Being grateful for the fact, you know, you have a nice home and you have food, I mean, that's fair enough, but it isn't going to convict anyone. But when you, kind of, you get put in prison and you sing hymns or when you get beaten and you rejoice for being worthy of suffering for the name, there's something strange and unusual. See, we can be happy because of the things that we've got in our lives, but when we're happy when people hate us, there was something incredible going on. That requires a God-given joy. You need the presence of God for that, don't you? That isn't natural or normal. Glad suffering shines brighter than gratitude. Think about it. If you have joy, who can stop you? So even you know, every military commander knows that attacking a country is much harder than defending it because people are willing to make sacrifices to defend the things that bring them joy. It's much harder to attack. And what do you do with the apostles? You know, you beat them up and they rejoice. You bang them up and they sing. You kill them and just more people come and take their place. And what do you do with these guys? The Spirit gives supernatural joy. And the reality is that you and I will give ourselves for what brings us joy. We do that already, don't we? We we make sacrifices for the things that bring us joy. And that joy that we have will enable us to conquer everything. You know, if you're if you're really devoted to the idea of running a marathon, you will get up at five o'clock in the morning and run long distances. You will do amazing things, amazing sacrifices. Other people think I couldn't do that because you have this joy about running a marathon. We need to be saved from a small vision, don't we? We need to be saved from a small life of just kind of collecting things for ourselves and having a garden with apple trees in. You know, when we get to heaven, what are we going to present to Jesus? Oh, Jesus, look at my garden and my apple tree. Wasn't it lovely? We we have no one to take with us into glory. We need to be saved from being self-obsessed. We need to get the joy of King Jesus, how you and I need this. It is easy in the midst of mission to lose joy. I mean, if you ever talk to a Jehovah's Witness at length, one of the things that is kind of quite striking is they're very zealous, but they often have very little joy. They don't seem very happy 
in what they're in what they're saying or what they're doing. And it's very hard to convince people that you've got good news if your life isn't good news. To preach good news, our lives have got to be good news. We need joy. So let me ask you, have you become disheartened? Have your joys been transferred to something else? Have you become discouraged by people's opposition? Have you started to lose your nerve? Has mission, the church, and prayer, and Jesus, have these things started to become unhappy things for you? Don't let yourself get robbed of the joy that the Holy Spirit wants to bring into your life. It is the biggest wealth you have. It's much more important than anything else you have in your life. That joy that the Spirit wants to give you, don't let it, don't let it get taken away. Imagine now your neighbour, the person sat next to you, while you're listening to this talk, was surreptitiously trying to nick your mobile. Trying to pickpocket. You can't be too careful. <laughs> Someone here is trying to nick your mobile. Now what would you do? You felt kind of, you thought, what are you doing? You'd stop them, wouldn't you? You'd stop them nicking your mobile. But how much more do we need to defend our joy? You can't be too careful defending your joy. Don't let it leak out of you. Don't let it go away. You wouldn't just give up your mobile phone to someone. Would you? Yeah, I have my mobile phone. I don't mind. It's only an iPhone 5. Then you want to be coming out soon. You, know, just, you, you'd, you wouldn't just give it away. Don't, so don't, don't just give away your joy. Don't throw it away. Don't throw your pearls before pigs. And, and, and as a church... For us, St. John's, and, I, and, and, and it will be the same for you. We need to hold on to our joy in the midst of our mission. We mustn't be so driven that actually we lose us the centrality of our joy in, in the Lord Jesus. The Spirit comes to make mission joyful. So, mission might seem impossible. We're very aware of all its challenges, the obstacles we face, the secular age, the distractions of media, the idols all around us, their hostile objections, and the reality of the human heart of sin, the world, and the devil. But you know what? We've got the Spirit of God. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. God has promised you his Spirit. We're not left alone. We're not orphans. We haven't been parachuted into enemy territory and cut off from HQ. Our God hasn't just kind of sent us in and said, well, you know, just try, try and do the best you can. The Spirit is directing the mission, sovereignly working. He's given us what we need. He supplies and we do the relying. He gives and we do the asking. He empowers and we go out. He gives joy and we do the rejoicing. That's the partnership we have. We're not alone. We've got what we need. There is great encouragement for us today. Mission is, has been made possible, powerful, and joyful. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, um, we are in awe at the gift you have given us. Your very self, your spirit. And Holy Spirit, we praise you and we thank you and we rely upon you. Oh, Father, we pray that you would pour out through the Lord Jesus more and more of your spirit upon us, upon our churches. We long to know the possibilities of evangelism, the power of evangelism, the joy of evangelism. We pray. Pour out your spirit upon us. We desperately need him, Father. We desperately need his presence. We cannot do this. We're too weak, too fragile. Help us, we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, should we do the same as before? Turn to your neighbour. Um, any questions or comments you've got? And then um, you can ask.